Good morning, everyone. My name is Madison Trisbiak. Uh, I am also a part of the vet school, and I have been coming to Sunnybrook for the last five years. And so today we're going to be going through the book of Jonah. And if you will turn to chapter three, we will start in verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the, word of the, uh, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. When he issued a decree in Nineveh, by order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. That attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over, and it did not grow. It appeared in night and perished in night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Madison. My name is Drew Moss. I work with the college ministry here at Sunnybrook. Glad to get a chance to share with you all this morning from this book of Jonah. About 17 years ago, uh, my wife Amy, who was my fiance at the time, was walking through the city of Lefkosia with a friend. Lefkosia, the capital city of Cyprus. She's walking through those streets with a friend and she came across this man who was sitting on the street corner begging for money. Actually, I probably need to rewind just a second because I told you she was walking through the streets of Lefkosia. Actually, most people would say that she was walking through the streets of Nicosia. 
It just kind of depends on which side of the city you're on because Lefkosia slash Nicosia is the only capital city in the entire world with a wall running right through the middle of it, divided in two halves by a United Nations buffer zone. And that, that buffer zone was put in place in 1964 as a way of trying to ease the tension between the two major people groups of Cyprus, the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots, to end the violence that continues to mount in that city over time. They put the wall there and put the Turkish people on the north side and the Greek people on the south side. It didn't work, and tensions continued to rise between these two all uh, throughout not just that city but through the island with little civil wars breaking out here and there. Finally, 10 years later in 1974, uh, there was a Greek coup taken over by the military there that was trying to unite the entire island with the country of Greece. And in response, the nation of Turkey sent down an army that came and invaded the island in two different waves. And there were multiple atrocities considered uh, uh, kind of committed by both sides, acts of uh, genocide and massive violence committed both ways, till finally the United Nations stepped in and said, enough. And they took that line that ran down the heart of the city and drew it out across the entire island and put uh, everyone who is Turkish Cypriot to the north, everyone who's Greek Cypriot to the south. And so if you were to walk through specifically some of these towns like Lefkosia, you could be walking down uh, a street, and, and everything will look normal, apartments over here, stores over here, and then all of a sudden you'll come to something like this, a wall right in the middle of those apartment buildings. And, and actually beyond that fence there, no one's living in those apartments, those are actually just the no man. Barrels stacked up with barbed wire strung over them, dividing the two points. Or you may even come across a cafe where people sit and eat with sandbags, barrels and barbed wire stacked over their heads to separate one side from the other. This is still what the city of Lefkosia and Nicosia looks like today. And it still represents this conflict that has been taking place on that island for years and years, a conflict that caused uh, some 220,000 people to be displaced from their homes back in the 60s and 70s. And so there my wife is walking on the south side of the island. We were on the north side, but she, was, she had crossed over. You have to have a passport to cross over. And she had crossed over, and she's walking on the south side of the island, the Greek side of the island, but she's walking with her friend Munay, who's Turkish, Turkish Cypriot, and they come across this man begging for money. Amy reached into her purse and pulled out a few Cypriot pounds and handed it to the man. And as they walked away, Munay, her friend, said to her, you know, that was really kind of you, but I could never do that. Amy said, what do you mean? And Mune said, well, he's Greek. And after the things that those people did to my people, after the things that my grandparents experienced and went through, after the things that my parents saw, I could never get to that. She actually said these words, to give to that man would be to dishonor my family. Remember later when Amy told me about that, just being so fascinated by that conversation, this, this concept that was really so foreign to me, something that I had never experienced, a, a culture, a nation 
where community and familial roots run deep, but where scars run perhaps even deeper. A nation where animosity is not just a feeling, it's a principle. It's, it's almost an obligation that I have to the, to the point where a simple kindness to a man in need would be considered a slap in the face to my own people. And if you can get your mind around that kind of animosity, if you can try and hold in your mind that picture, that level of conflict and tension between two people groups, then you'll have some idea for the context of our book today, the book of Jonah. Jonah's a really interesting character because he is probably, no, I would, I would say not probably, he is the most famous of all the Old Testament prophets. He's the one prophet that, that pretty much everybody knows. If you spent any time in Sunday school growing up, you know the story of Jonah. Actually, even if you didn't spend time in Sunday school, if you've never even stepped foot in a church, you probably know the name of Jonah. And if someone was to say the phrase Jonah and the, you could probably finish that statement with Jonah and the whale. Everybody knows about Jonah. He's the most famous of every prophet in the Old Testament, which is odd because he's really the least like any other prophet in the Old Testament. He is the least typical prophet in the Old Testament. If you want to get an idea what prophets were like, what Israelite prophets were like, if you want to get an idea what prophetic literature is like in the Old Testament, the last place you go is to Jonah. Because Jonah is an upside-down prophet story. It's a backwards prophet story. It's one in which everything seems to run counter to the way prophecy and the biblical prophets always work in the New Testament. There'd be very few things, if you were reading through the Bible for the first time and you came across all the prophets and you came to the book of Jonah, you would be kind of thrown for a loop by the way this book unfolds. Actually, there's only one verse in there that would sound kind of normal and familiar to you, and that's the very first verse of Jonah. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That, that sounds familiar. That phrase actually comes up 110 times in the prophets. And most of the prophetic books open with a phrase like that. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah. The word of the Lord came to the priest Ezekiel, son of Buzi. Came to Hosea, son of Piri. Came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That's how most of the prophetic books begin. Now, We don't know a lot about Jonah, son of Amittai. Uh, We know a little bit that we hear in this book. And then we actually, though, we, we have this one little tidbit about Jonah because this isn't the only book that actually mentions him in the Old Testament. He gets this small little shout out in 2 Kings chapter 14. I want to read from that for you real quick just so you can hear. 2 Kings chapter 14 says this. In the 15th year of Judah's king Amaziah, son of Joash, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. So there was a Jeroboam the first who caused Israel to begin to sin and then later there's a Jeroboam the second who did not turn away and was also very evil followed the same sins and yet we're told this Jeroboam restored Israel's border from Libo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word that uh, the Lord the God of Israel had spoken through his servant the prophet Jonah son of Amittai from Gath Hefer. 
For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter for both slaves and free people. There was no one to help Israel, and the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven, so he delivered them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. So there are these two things we get to see about Jonah in this little section of Scripture. The first is that he hails from a village in the northern part of Israel called Gath Hefer. We know that about him. The other thing we know is that Jonah actually gets to be, uh, to do something pretty rare for the prophets in that day, and that is give good news. Uh, most of the prophets don't get to deliver very much good news, at least not for the immediate future. The good news they give is far in, in the future. But Jonah gets to, in the middle of a moment where things look bleak for Israel, when, when God, where their enemies are oppressing them, Jonah gets to stand up and prophesy and perhaps even give the orders to King Jeroboam that King Jeroboam will expand the kingdom of Israel, will press back their enemies that have been afflicting them and push them and will expand the borders out. So Jonah is, is probably a somewhat popular prophet, someone who, he's a prophet of victory. He gives good news. He is the prophet of expanded borders. But now, God wants him to talk about a different kind of expansion, and this would be an expansion that would shock Jonah and would shock the people of Israel and any readers who come across this in verse 2. Here's where the story of Jonah starts to go upside down. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. The odd thing here is that every other prophet in the Old Testament is commissioned to go and speak to the people of God, to either the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. Jonah, however, is commissioned to go to speak to another people group, to, God's, to the people of God's enemies, to Nineveh in Assyria. And so this is going to be an expansion, not of Israel's borders, but an expansion of God's word to people beyond Israel's borders, to an expansion even of God's mercy beyond the borders of Israel. The Assyrians were known as a violent, power-hungry, cruel people. All the surrounding nations feared Assyria, not just because they were powerful and not just because they were always trying to expand their empire, but because they were brutal they were known to be brutal to the people that they captured, and people lived in great fear of them, and Nineveh was one of the major cities for this empire. It was kind of used in, in different literature, both Jewish and Greek, as a representative, uh, kind of a representation for the evils and violence of Assyria. It was almost kind of allegorical for the wickedness of Assyria. And so Jonah is sent to these people. It would seem to him an impossible task to go preach about his one true God in the city of Assyria. Not to mention it would be an unpopular one to go and preach to God's enemies. And that leads us to the next surprise in this book, verse 3. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. See, in all the other prophets, when that first verse comes up, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, son of so-and-so, like the very next verses are that prophet opening his mouth and speaking the word of the Lord. And so you would expect if you were reading Jonah that the very next verses would be Jonah opening his mouth, but instead the very next verse is Jonah running for the hills. Is Jonah rebelling 
against the word of the Lord that has been spoken to him and running away from him. That is what he's doing here. Now, this is surprising, but it's not shocking. I mean, it's, it's understandable, right? Why Jonah doesn't want to go to these people, why he doesn't want to go to speak to them. And, and all of us, I think, can, can at least identify somewhat with this. Ever had one of those moments where, like Jonah, you feel like God is calling you to do something and you don't want to hear it? Maybe you sit in the pews on a Sunday morning as someone preaches about forgiveness and it feels like God is sitting there in the pew next to you, tapping on your shoulder the whole time, whispering a name into your ear. You know, you know the person he's talking about. You know that God is calling you to forgive. You just don't want to. Or maybe you're reading through the Bible and you find yourself in the epistles where Paul is talking about putting sin to death. And even as you read that you've been clinging to and nursing and holding dear and you don't want to give it up, but he's calling you to it. Maybe you've had a moment where you see a need in your community, your neighborhood, or in this church, and and you feel this tug like perhaps God wants to use you to help meet that need, but you don't want to wrap yourself up in that. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be time-consuming. And so you tell yourself that Maybe that's just kind of a guilty conscience. You tell yourself that you're just kind of hearing things. You, you try to distract yourself with other thoughts and with other activities. All of us have our own way of running from the voice of God. But Jonah is not just running from the voice of God. The text tells us he's, he's running from the presence of God, which is laughable, honestly. Because if there's anything more impossible than preaching in Nineveh, it's escaping God's presence as Jonah will discover in the very next verse. Verse four, but the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart and the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. So the storm comes, God sends it to stop Jonah from running, and the sailors are doing everything they can to stop it. They're praying out to their own idols, to their gods. They're throwing cargo overboard. Nothing seems to be working. And so they run down and they grab Jonah to help. And then eventually they end up casting lots to try to find out whose fault this is, who made their God angry enough to send this storm to us. And the lots fall on Jonah. So they ask him, who are you and what have you done? Jonah says to them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the God who made the sea and the land. And then this verse comes in. It says that a great fear seized the sailors. You can almost picture this. Them going, okay, you got to be kidding me, right? Um, Let me get this straight. You worship the God who made the sea, and you thought it'd be a good idea to try to run away from him on the sea. You roped us into that, right? And, uh, and you can almost hear Jonah going, well, in my defense, he made the dry land too. So where do you want me to go? Like, what am I supposed to do, right? And, and, and so he says, listen, there's only one way this is going to end. You're going to have to throw me into the water to end this. They don't want to do that. They're afraid that might anger this God even more. And so they, they try everything else they can. They begin rowing, trying to get themselves to safety, but it's not working. So finally they decide it has to be done. And they pick up Jonah and they cast him down into the sea. And when he hits the water and begins to sink, the storm subsides. 
And we read the words again, a great fear seized these sailors. Now they're not just afraid of the storm, they're afraid of a God who can do things like this. And then we come to probably the most famous verse in the book, chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now there's this trend in chapter 1, maybe you noticed it, this trend of Jonah going down. The book opens with this, get up and go to Nineveh. And then we read that Jonah gets up, but instead of going to Nineveh, he keeps going down. It says he went down to Joppa, and then he went down into a ship. And then a few verses later, he went down into the deepest part of the ship. And then eventually the sailors have to cast him down into the sea, and then he finds himself down all the way into a belly of a fish. All of this is a result of him trying to get away from God's presence. And then what does Jonah discover when he is down at his lowest point? point? God's presence. There's this prayer slash psalm that Jonah writes kind of describing this experience of his in chapter 2. You can read some of there in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says this, I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. Then jump down to verse 5. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. It's interesting the way Jonah describes this. He uses these two words. In verse 2, he says that he cried out from Sheol. Sheol is, according to the Hebrews, the place of the dead. It's the underworld, it's the netherworld. And he says, the gates of earth shut behind him as he went down there. And then in verses five and six, he says that I cried out to God and he raised me from the pit. A pit is a word that is used, you'll see multiple times, like in the Psalms, where pit is used to describe the grave. So he's describing being in the place of the dead, being in the grave. And for that reason, there were some rabbis who actually believed, and there's some commentators today who would say that Jonah is describing a literal death here. That Jonah did not live three days in the belly of the fish, that he actually physically died in there and that God resurrected him up to have him vomited back out. We don't know for sure what's happening here, but, but the point is the same either way. What Jonah is trying to say is, I was beyond hope. I was at the lowest point. I was beyond saving, beyond helping, and yet even there, God saved him. If uh, Jonah had been studying or reading Psalm 139, David's words, he would have known this already. It wouldn't have been a surprise to him. This is how David describes it in verses 7 through 10. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. Side note, this isn't the main point of the message today, but I think it may be worth just pointing this out from the book of Jonah. You cannot outrun God. And that's really good news. You know that? That there is no place that you can go There is no failure 
you can fall into. There is no pit of darkness or loneliness or despair where the hand of God cannot reach you. Know that if that is you today. If you feel like you've run too far, if you feel like you've fallen and sunk too deep, know and take heart from the words of David and the words of Jonah this morning. Jonah closes out his psalm, his prayer in verses 8 and 9 where he says, Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. There are some people who say that that last little sentence in Jonah's prayer is perhaps the theme verse of the whole book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Maybe. I can tell you it's probably a fairly good theme verse for all the Bible, actually. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the fish vomits Jonah up onto the dry land, and he gets a second chance. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. His walk in the city and proclaimed a great city, a three-day walk. And Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Now, here's the next big twist in this prophecy story. It's that Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches to all these people and the people listen. And they repent. So if you've read through any of the books of prophecy, you know that that's not usually how this goes. That most of the prophets will spend their, like their entire ministry, years and years, preaching to God's people, calling them to repent, warning them of judgment. And over and over and over again, they're met with hardened hearts. They're ignored at best or they're shunned, or some of them are even persecuted for saying these things. But here, in the least likely of places, the people listen to Jonah, and they repent. We're told that the king, when he hears news of this, he declares a citywide fast and a citywide period of mourning and prayer to this new God that they just heard about, Yahweh of the Hebrews, asking that this God might have mercy on them and not bring the wrath that he has threatened. And then we read, that he does, that the Lord relents and does not bring the disaster that he threatened, which leads us to the last big surprise in this book, chapter four, starting in verse one. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. So here we have Jonah 
one of the few prophets in the Bible to actually have success in his preaching, at least by human standards. The people actually listen and respond, and now he's angry about that success. He's mad that it worked, that it's effective. Why? Why is Jonah so angry here? Is he angry that God is gracious and compassionate? Of course not. No, no, no. He and his compassion time and time benefited from God's graciousness and his compassion time and time again. It's, it's, they've, they've benefited even in 2 Kings 14 when they're under an evil king who's doing terrible things. In that moment when they cry out to God in their affliction, he has grace on them. He has mercy on them. This is the story of Israel from the very beginning is that God shows mercy to them even when they don't deserve it. He gives grace to them even when they don't deserve it. No, Jonah's not mad that God is gracious and compassionate. He's mad that God is gracious and compassionate to these people. To the Assyrians, to those from Nineveh. That's not how this is supposed to work, God. We're your people, not them. We're the ones you should be speaking to right now. So, what am I doing in the middle of Assyria? We're the ones that you chose so long ago and said that we would be your special people. And of course, that's true. They are God's chosen covenant people. But what Jonah has forgotten, and what Israel seems to forget over and over again is why they are God's chosen people, why he came and picked them for himself. It was not so that they could hoard all of God's goodness and grace to themselves. That was never the point. Jim talked about this a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 12. From the very beginning, when God went and found Abraham and said, I'm going to make a great nation from you and and, uh, from your descendants, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. From the very beginning, he says this to Abraham's world. So from the very you, and then he says, and through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. So from the very outset, we've seen that the point in choosing Israel was not just Israel. The point was that he would use Israel to then bless the whole world. Later in Exodus 19, when God meets the people, he's rescued them out of Egypt, and he brings them to Sinai to make a covenant with them, and he tells them that they will be a chosen people for him. But then he says, but know this, that the whole earth is mine, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests mediate between God and man. Priests are the go-between. They're the ones who represent man to God and God down to human beings. And that's what Israel is supposed to be. They're supposed to be representing God to the nations around them. But they've forgotten all that. Jonah has forgotten all that. And now his worst fears are coming true that God is having compassion on people that are not the people of Israel. He goes up onto a hill to watch, hoping against hope that maybe he's wrong. Maybe, maybe God will be angry anyway. Maybe God will send the destruction that he wants anyway. And then while he's waiting up there, we read that God appoints a plant, a vine, just in the same way that God appointed a great fish. He appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah and to provide shade for him up on the side of this hill. And Jonah is pleased with this. He likes this a lot. But then the very next morning, God appoints 
a worm to come and devour that plant. And then he appoints a dry eastern wind to come and blow on Jonah, and he is angry all over again. So God asks Jonah a question, a couple questions, actually, in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 4. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? It's an interesting ending for this book. It's one of only two books in all the Bible that ends with a question, an unanswered question. The other one is Nahum. And the reason I believe this question is left unanswered is because the question is not just for Jonah. The question is for the reader. The question is for the people of Israel when they first read this book for the first time, a question that they were meant to grapple with. Are you okay with God caring about other people? People outside of Israel's boundaries. Are you okay with him wanting to give grace to other people, to terrible people, to your enemies? And of course, the question is not just for Israel. The question is also for us today. God, we are the ones who have received and benefited from his boundless grace. But just as with Israel... That grace was never meant to stay within our four walls. It was never meant to stay within our boundaries. God longs to show his grace and mercy to others, including people that you might not expect, including people that you might not like. The truth is that probably none of us in here have enemies in like the traditional sense, like the Israelites did, or like the Cypriots in the 60s and 70s. But most of us probably have someone, somebody, maybe some group of people that we're not real fond of, that we don't like very much. And the question for us is this, are you okay with God loving those people? Are you okay with God loving that family member who wronged you so deeply many years ago, damaged the relationship you have, not just with them, but with the family around them? Are you okay with the fact that God loves the pushy or manipulative coworker that you go to work with, who's always opposing you, who always seems to be trying to undermine you in everything that you do? Are you okay with God loving the kinds of people that seem to stand against everything you stand for? Are you okay with him holding out grace to uppity, woke Democrats them holding out grace to rude and uncompassionate Republicans. You pick your people group. Are you okay with him longing to show mercy to those who are pushing an LGBTQ agenda in schools, towards those who stand against things like religious freedom, towards Islamic extremists who would want more than anything else to put an end to freedom, to put an end to Christianity, to put an end to the church? Are you okay with that? Next question. Are you okay with him using you to do that? Are you okay with the fact that perhaps he wants to use you, your prayers for those people? To use your time, 
to use your money, to, to use your words to those people to extend his grace to them. Go back with me for just a minute to chapter four, verse two. I may be wrong. I know people say that Ephesians, or that, that uh, chapter two, verse nine is probably the key verse. I kind of think it's a, uh, that it's chapter four, verse two might be the theme verse for the whole book. It's at least my favorite. I can say that much. It's where Jonah is arguing with God. It says, he prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah's complaint here is that he knew that God would do this. That he knew that God was going to act like this. That's why I tried to get away, because I know what you're like. And I think that this is so interesting. Because there's this common understanding today that tries to pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament. as those are two different gods. That this one over here is kind and warm and fuzzy and gracious. But that the God of the Old Testament is always angry and always wrathful and always ready to reading that off the handle. I'm telling you, if that's your view of God in the Old Testament, it just shows that you have not been reading that closely. Because time and time again, these words are used to describe God, and Jonah knows that. He is not shocked when God relents. He said, I knew that you would do this. This is so like you, God. You're always giving forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. You're always giving mercy to people who shouldn't have it. You're too quick to to forgive. Your grace is too big. It's too sloppy. You'll just let it go everywhere. You'll throw it out to anyone who will listen, regardless of how awful they are. Is he wrong? Thank God he's not. And not just for the Ninevites. Thank God for Jonah's sake that he's not. Because Jonah has benefited just as much from God's grace all throughout this story from a boundless grace that pursued Jonah even in his disobedience when he tries to run across from the sea, from a boundless grace that saves him when he's sinking to the depths of the sea, to a grace that gives him a second chance to go and do what was right again, and a grace that still continues to reach out and try to teach Jonah long after he's preached and is angry as he tries to teach him through a plant and through worms and through wind. And thank God that Jonah's not wrong about God's grace on our behalf. The truth is, actually, Jonah doesn't even know the half of it. Jonah doesn't know that some 800 years later, another prophet from the exact same region as Jonah, actually just a few miles southeast of Jonah's hometown, Gath Heifer, there's this little village called Nazareth. And a prophet would one day come from that town who had actually a number of similarities to Jonah. Just like Jonah, he was called away from his homeland to go and to proclaim a message from God. Just like Jonah, he preached of the expansion of God's people, though not in ways that many people expected. Just like Jonah, he too would spend three days in a place of death and then walk right out again. Actually, Jesus of Nazareth makes that comparison himself in Matthew 12, verse 40. When the people ask him for a sign that he truly is the Messiah, he says, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. 
For just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so I, the Son of Man, will spend three days in the tomb, and then I will walk out. There are a number of similarities between Jesus and Jonah, but there are also a number of ways that they're very different. In fact, in the very next verse, Matthew 12, 41, Nazareth is not just a prophet, he's also the very Son of God. And unlike Jonah, he did not rebel when his father sent him to us. He came gladly to us. And his life and his ministry was marked by reaching out to all the people who were left outside the boundaries of good and deserving. He inconvenienced himself over and over again to meet with Samaritan women and to eat in the homes of traitorous tax collectors and to dine with prostitutes. And while Jonah sat up on a hill looking down, hoping that Nineveh would be destroyed, Jesus stood up on a hill, weeping over Jerusalem, wishing that they would repent and that they would come back. And while Jonah entered a tomb because of his own rebellion, Jesus entered a tomb because of ours. Because Jesus did not just come to preach to his enemies, he came to die for them. And the Bible says that those enemies, that that was us. That's how it's described in Romans chapter 5. Paul says it like this, chapter 5 Starting in verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? This is how God treated us in Jesus. Expanding the borders of his people, expanding the borders of his family to welcome us in, expanding the borders of his grace to surpass all of our sins. And so now we have a choice. Will we be like Jonah, hoarding this grace to ourselves? Or will we be like Jesus? Will you reach out in love towards those who may not respond in kind? Will you pray regularly for your neighbors and for your coworkers, asking God to open their hearts up to the good news of Jesus and praying that he might give you an opportunity to share the grace of Jesus with them? Will, give, will you give your resources, your money, to help the gospel get to the unreached on the other side of the world? Will you consider the fact that maybe you're called to go to the unreached on the other side of the world? Will you seek to finally speak the name to tell to that friend or that family member that you've been thinking about for some time, to tell them about a God who loves them and whose grace is bigger than all of our boundaries? Will you be like Jonah? Will you be like Jesus? One of the reasons communion is so important is that you and I we need these regular reminders of God's boundless grace towards us. The fact that we didn't deserve to be any part of this, that we don't deserve to come in here and hear from God and sing to God and meet with God, but, but we get this because of the boundless grace that he gave us in Jesus. 
That's why we celebrate this together each week to remind ourselves of this. That's why we take this together. This is Christ's body given for us. Take and eat. This is Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink 